times and places. And so today we're going to walk through that process of what are the different kinds of doubts and how do you deal with the different kinds, okay? I want to do kind of a something first of all, make sure that this works, yeah. I want to talk just a moment. I, I've been, uh, I've heard people talk about expository preaching and what that is and how it works. Expository is what we do at this church. Expository is where you take a, a portion of scripture, like Colleen's uh, sermon this morning is an excellent example. She didn't come at it with a topic and then pull out that topic. Whatever the scripture said, she said it to us. That's expository. And so you exposit. And you can see the definition I took off the internet, that you have to study words, you have to study context, you have to understand it. And you tend to then go through books of the Bible, like she's going through uh, 1 Samuel right now. The second type, well, there's actually four types of, of uh, it's called homiletics when you talk about preaching. I'm not going to do the others, but I wanted to do topical. Topical is what I'm going to actually do in this class today, so you can, you can see the difference. Topical is when you come at a topic, like doubt, and you say, okay, what does the Bible have to say about doubt? Do you hear the difference? You don't take a scripture and say, what does the Bible say about a whole bunch of different topics? And what does the book as a whole say about a bunch of different topics? We're going to go all over the Bible. I'm going to take you all over. And we're going to look at many different texts. That's topical. Now, I don't like that as well because it's easy for me to cherry pick the, the verses. And the verses that are hard, I just left them out of my lecture. <laughs> Do you follow? When you're expositing a text, you have to deal with all the hard texts too. You have to deal with everything that God says. I mean, nobody wanted to preach on the fact that Eli's kids were making love to all the women in the church and he didn't do anything about it. Well, that's not a very nice topic on a Sunday morning, but Colleen had to deal with it and did it excellently as she helped us understand why the judgment on Eli's house was what it was. Okay, does all that make sense? So I just want to point that out because I'm not going to do something like we would do if we were in a worship service. So, how do we get at this topic? Well, you all know that I love the arts. I love movies, I love music, I love all of that. And probably the best of the arts that we do in a worship service is our music. And the great hymns of the church are ones that do theological training about important areas. And this is one of our hymns, Spirit of the Living God, Descend Upon My Heart. It's written in 1854. And this is the second verse. Let's, let's all sing it together. Teach me to feel that thou art always nigh. Teach me the struggles of the soul to bear. To check the rising down the rebel side. Teach me the patience of this poem that was put to music, we have four different kinds of doubts. Only one of them, in fact, talk about doubt itself, but they're all forms of doubt. First is the struggle of the soul. We're going to walk through each of these, and we'll talk about how they are cared for. Struggles of the soul, the rising doubt, the rebel side, and the patience of unanswered prayer. Okay? 
So that's our, our little outline that we're going to go by. So you can think of that verse, and you can think about these different things. So let's start then, first of all, with uh, struggles of the soul. These are experiences that cause us to doubt. Either we doubt God's power, or his love, or his intention for us, because we've gone through usually a difficult time. Sometimes it can be something that's confusing, uh, something that is unexpected, uh, whatever the struggle might be. Okay? You follow that? Okay? The second is a rising doubt. Now, this is what most people think when you say, okay, we're going to talk about doubts. They think of this second type. This is usually an intellectual, logical, philosophical, theological question. And uh, pastors spend a lot of time answering those kinds of things for people in their spiritual development. Because uh, the, the soul and the mind have to be connected in order for a person to grow. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, the rebel side, though, people don't often think of, but almost always, a rebel uses doubt to justify either their own control, like uh, Colleen Sermon this morning, I'm going to, you do you, I'm going to do me. That's a rebel side. Uh, disobedience, what Eli did, he knew what it was. Go back and read the chapter that, that we weren't able to study and read what he said. He said very uh, graphically what he was going to do because of his disobedience of uh, taking care of his sons. And rejection of authority, doubt justifies that. Uh, the last one we often don't think of, but this is actually one of the more common ones, and that is not getting what we ask for, and then we begin to doubt God or his love or prayer, or how do we, how do we deal with the fact that most often, in fact, God doesn't say yes to our prayer. <laughs> well, is that an unanswered prayer? No, it is, but we don't like it. And so it's, it's kind of, we come at it, and if we don't like it, we tend to say, well, I'm not sure God listens, or I'm not sure he's there, or he cares, or something like that. Okay, you follow the four? So let's go to the first. The struggles of the soul. Oh, first of all, we deal with them differently. We engage we bear the struggles of the soul. Uh, we'll we'll uh, use this all the way through the, the, the morning. But the word that, that the scriptures say over and over to solve things is confess. <coughs> if you confess, then he's faithful and righteous. He'll forgive and cleanse. But confess simply means to go out from behind the resistance, the denial, the, the fakeness of our lives and say the real thing. We have to say the truth to God. That's what confess means. And when we confess it, then we can, we can have forgiveness, which really means to remove it from us, and cleansing, which really means to make us pure. And so he's faithful in us to forgive and to cleanse. So we have to engage it. We have to confess it. We're having a struggle of soul. I need to talk about this. I need to talk about it with God and with others and so on. Rising doubt, we need to check it out. The, the analogy that I often use is that when you have a doubt, an intellectual doubt, it's back here kind of like this huge, oppressive thing. Oh no, I can't look at it. What if, what if God's not real? What if he doesn't care about me? What if, and it starts weighing us down until we are so overwhelmed by our doubt that we, we just can't survive. What we have to do is to bring it out, doubt your doubts, 
And you'll see that most doubts have spindly little legs. And you can easily answer them if you'll just look at them. Do you follow? So an intellectual doubt is, de is dealt with that way. You pull it out. Talk about it. I always say to people, you know, there are whole volumes answering the question that we're dealing with today. If you want to know with the mind, let me give you some volumes, or let me talk about it. How far do you need, to, do you need and want to go in order to get your doubt cared for? Um, we have to keep a rebel side check. You know, it's easy to become rebellious. And we have to wait on unanswered prayer. Uh, because God will answer, but we have to wait. And that, oftentimes, doubt doesn't let us do that. So, engaging and bearing the struggle. Where we get the, the concept of wrestling is actually the word Israel. Israel means a person who wrestles with God. And so we have this wonderful event that occurs in Genesis 32, where Jacob has run because, you know, he deceived his father and got the blessing. He's lived now 21 years in, in his uncle's uh, uh, care, and he's amassed all these wealth and everything because God was with him in all of this. And now he's coming back and he's going to meet his brother Esau and he's really worried he's going to kill him. So he's worried he's going to die. So he's got a lot of fears. And he comes to this river and we're told at first that a man wrestled with him, verse 26. And he's, uh, the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replies to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So they wrestle all night long. It's almost daybreak. And then he says to him, well then, this is his blessing. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And then he asks him for his name. And of course, that's an attempt to take power over God. That's why in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord, the Hebrew there is actually Yahweh, I am. I am who I am. And we think of that as a name. It's not really a name. Jesus, God is just saying to, to Moses, look, you know, I am who I am. You're not going to have control over me. Uh, there's no power over me, by the way. But you'll see it about 3,000 times or so in the, in the Old Testament that it says Lord. And in the good Bibles, it'll do it in kind of italics. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's the actual Yahweh. I am what I am. But they don't. They wouldn't say it. And, and modern Jews would not say they do G underlying D, they don't even say God in that sense out of reverence for God. So, you're going to be the God wrestler, the struggle. How do we overcome struggles of the soul? These daily experiences that are so overwhelming to us? Will we fully engage them? We're fully present with God. Now, these are just some ways in which that might be true. Think of your own life in which you become fully present with God when you're going through a hard time. What, what we tend to do is we tend to withdraw and hide and turn away because we doubt God's love and presence. We want to turn back toward God, be fully present with God, tell Him everything we're upset about, and everything we're going through. If you, if you have difficulty putting that into words, go to the Psalms. David is an expert at this. He's always upset with God. And so 
Read the Psalms. Read what he says. How can you let my enemies do this? They're, they're around me on all sides. Why did you let this happen? And he says it directly to God. He's not saying it some kind of internal dialogue. He's saying it to God. So we have to wrestle with God about what we're going through. We have to tell him all about it. What that does is it brings us <coughs> from behind all the fences and defenses and, and denials and uh, personas and fakeness and all the things that we tend to, to kind of cover our real self with, and we're real with God. Do you follow? Can you bring that back to Jacob's wrestling? The Jacob's wrestling, that he, he was real with God? He said, unless you bless me, I'm not going to let you go. How do you know he was wrestling with God? Only afterwards. He says, at the bottom of it, he says, uh, uh, in the text that I put up there, was that uh, I have seen God face to face and have lived. That's how he knows it's God. So if you can, if you can live after facing God face to face, then you, you've wrestled. Woody? Uh, it seems like um, Jacob is uh, fearful and... Uh, not trusting at all, and then he gets a reward. Isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> you never know what God will do. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of a reward. He calls it, okay, okay you're a God wrestler. That's, that's, yeah, I've I heard there being God worshippers. That has become yeah, it's become famous. Didn't Jacob come out? Yes. He, he, he touched him in the hip, so uh, as one of my professors in seminary always used to say, if you don't walk with a spiritual limp, you haven't wrestled with God. <laughs> and so there's a humility, a reality, that you're always aware of the power of God, uh, that he, he is more powerful. I, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but there's a song that was going around probably 15 years or so ago about a boxing match between uh, Jesus and Satan. Did you ever hear that? No. Well, I'm glad that it didn't make it. <laughs> because it talks about how Jesus takes a swing and takes a swing and they knock each other down and all that. Well, nothing could be further from the truth of, of, of evil and good. God is able, with just a flick of his finger, to remove all evil. Why does he not? Well, that's the hard. That's what brings the doubts up. Why does he let evil come into our lives? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's what the whole book of Job is about, and struggling with this and understanding. But we recognize that there's something greater than this moment that we're a part of. We're a part of the human condition, the fall of creation, the fall of humanity, and that all things are working on his story, through history, to this completion, the teleos, completion of all things, which is of course, the new heaven and new earth and new life, where all things live forever. Do you follow? All of that working together, we have to struggle through when we're going through it. We wrestle with our own inaccurate and limited understanding. That goes a little bit to the next level, but we wrestle against the things that we don't understand. And uh, to be honest with you, a lot of the things about Christian faith our brains are not able to understand. They're way too small. Uh, the great mystery of the faith. Even, even let's take the simple sacrament itself. What does it mean that we take this bread and this wine to heal our bodies and soul, to, 
to give us the life of God. What does that mean? Well, the greatest theologians say it is a mystery. And what they're really saying is it's beyond your comprehension mm -hmm. as a limited being. Does that make sense? So sometimes we're struggling with things that are larger than ourselves, and we're simply struggling. We're going to struggle. That's just the reality of it. There, there's not going to be a simple uh, understanding. We wrestle with sin and what sin has done to us. You know, that's a great example of what Kali was talking about with Eli. Mm -hmm. I mean, sin destroyed his family, but it, it didn't destroy, as she said, just because it was sin. It, it destroyed because it wasn't based on sin. It wasn't brought out of sin. It wasn't changed. There wasn't metanoia to turn away from it, to go the other way. Does that make sense? And so we have to wrestle with our sins, which means, first of all, to confess it, own it. Say, yeah, that's a sin. And we're going to stop it. And also, the probably the harder ones, I think, we can kind of take it when God brings about consequences of our sin, but when sin done to us and we are innocent and somebody sinned against us and God allowed that, that brings all kinds of doubt and feelings within us. Why would God allow it? Well, there's broad spectrum answers to that, large answers to that, that have to do with the reality of worship, love, if we had no choice, we could have no worship. If we had no choice, we could have no love. God values the love and worship of his people and between his people, and so he has to give us freedom. But freedom to be really free has to be real, and the choices have to be real, and evil has to be real. Do you follow? Now that, that's something that all of us you know, even the disciples said, you know, why, why don't we just get rid of Satan? Yeah, I would agree with that. Why don't we just get rid of all evil and all the different ways it comes to us? Well, because the time is not yet here. It's not yet complete. We have more Christians alive right now than have ever lived in history. Now think about that. More Christians alive right now than have ever lived in all of history. So if God did not delay at least this long, we wouldn't be in heaven. This vast, you know, however you want to define who Christians are, there are two billion who, who say they're Christians, who follow Jesus Christ. So imagine all that are going to be able to be in heaven with them. Well, they had to wait for that, right? But last century and even today, uh, Christians are being killed all over, over the world. You know, 50 million or so were killed in uh, the last century. We just saw all those that are being killed in Nigeria this week uh, by those who don't want them to live and so on. Does, that, does all that make sense? We also have to wrestle with life's injustices. That raised actually the same kinds of doubt. Why would God allow injustice? Why doesn't he just stop? So we have to wrestle when we're the ones who receive that injustice. When the justice system, quote, didn't work for us. It's not really a justice system, it's a legal system. But the legal system didn't work to bring justice. How do we wrestle with that? Why didn't God give us the, the, the answer in the place we want to be? 
Do you follow? Okay. I'll, I'll give you an opportunity in just a second. We wrestle with disease and death. <coughs> now, we can, we can read that the wages of sin is death and that God never intended for us to die and that it wasn't something that, that was a part of humanity when God created us. We can understand that. But in our fallen state, why does he allow it to continue? Why does he allow a child to die or someone to die young? Why does he allow somebody to die a painful death? You know, we get the word excruciating from the Latin word for cross because there's no more excruciating way for a person to die than on a cross. But if you've lived very long, you've walked with people that you love who went through excruciating death. And that, many times for a Christian, is a greater fear than dying. We, we want to go, I don't, I'm not afraid of being in God's hands, that's okay. But I don't want to hurt. And I don't want Cheryl to hurt because of what I go through. So we struggle with that. We wrestle with it. You know, all the stages of grief and all the different things we experience, rage and anger and, and depression and disappointment, and th those are all real life experiences. And we struggle with God in that. Again, you bring it out, you bring that struggle to God and God will comfort you. The God of comfort will be with you. And, and what's, what's interesting, in the sacrament, when we finish it, the pastor will often say, they don't always say it, but they will often say, and the peace of God which passes all understanding. Now just think of that phrase, the peace of God which passes all doubts, all understanding, that transcends this life struggle that you're in right now. Be with you. And with you to the end of the age. With you. Okay? So there's just a couple more. Uh, we wrestle with uh, God in prayer, and that's, of course, the best place to wrestle with God. But to wrestle with God with your pastor, with your spouse, with a good friend, with somebody that will go through this with you. You know, the, the word that we use for the Holy Spirit is paraclete, and it means to come alongside in comfort. Not necessarily to come alongside to solve it, which is what husbands like to do. We like to come alongside and that's not what paraclete actually means is to come alongside and to grieve with those who grieve rejoice with those who rejoice that's what God wants to do with us in the midst of things he wants to, to come alongside we have to also wrestle with pastors in their preaching and counseling when, whenever something is said that convicts us or causes us to, to need to face it or we disagree Whatever it might be, we wrestle with those who are our teachers, and we should. You know, I, I, when I was a pastor, I got those all the time. I'm sure Colleen does as well, as people are thinking them through. What does this mean? And oftentimes, it's a conviction of the Holy Spirit that they are hearing or understanding. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, we wrestle with others in our Bible study. We wrestle with authors and books and so on. You can, you can take this on. Wrestling means to be fully present with our experiences in life and own our doubts. Do not deny or hide, or, but fear and face them. And uh, as I said, uh, doubting your doubts will be true at all four of these kinds of things. Where Why do we give more emotional value in the struggle to a doubt than we do to a trust? Of faith. Why do we do that? 
Well, in part because we have the tendency to do the sinful thing rather than to do the right thing. That's what we mean by God's, uh, by the original sin of Adam and Eve. It's not Adam and Eve's sin. It's that all of us enter into this human condition where we don't have to work at bad habits. They just happen. But we have to work at turning our lives around with God. Okay, any questions about doubts that come from the struggles of life? Scott? I was wondering if you could share your thoughts in regards to um, wrestling with uh, disease or death and um, the fact that God also uh, can bless us with the power to heal. And um, maybe I'm not thinking about it in the best way, but there sometimes seems to come a point where you struggle to pray for healing and a point where you just learn to accept how things are. And I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on the relationship between those two. Great question, probably central question in, in this whole struggling area of, of doubt. Because intellectually or logically, it would be much better if God never healed. Right? Intellectually. Because then you can just simply say, well, you've got a disease, you're, you're, going to, you're going to die. And many, many times, many times, uh, personally, I, Cheryl and I have experienced, where in our own family, we're made, God made it clear that he's not going to heal, that this is a moment for this person uh, to be with, you know, so say goodbye, you know, that kind of thing. So, from intellectual, but God does heal. Now that causes the problem. If he heals John's wife or Joe's daughter and doesn't heal my wife and my daughter, then does God love John and Joe, but he doesn't love me? That's where the, where the, the doubt or fears or feelings come in, right? So one of the things that a professor in seminary told me that was really helpful for me he said, how many blind people do you think there were in Jesus' day? How many paralytics? How many people died, their children died, their, their doulas, their slave, their servant died? Why do we only have like five or six stories of raising from the dead? Why wouldn't he raise everybody from the dead? I mean, doesn't he love everyone? The Bible tells us he's no respecter of persons, so you don't have to be wealthy or rich or smart or anything. He loves us all equally. <clears throat> Why doesn't he? And it's at that point that you begin to realize that there's something more to all of this than what we can see in this era and in this level. And that God has an ultimate plan that's going to be lived out and that we'll understand. C.S. Lewis has some helpful things on this. He says that Miracles have laws of miracles just as uh, creation has laws of creation. You know, gravity and, and all that kind of stuff. And when we get to heaven, we're going to see that, of course, this child needed to go, come to heaven because something else that was going to happen or some other thing that was going to happen that we can't see, and God could see it and knew it. Another way it's been described is that if you look at a, at a carpet, um, you know, a woven carpet from like Egypt or something, you know, a beautiful pattern carpet, 
When you look at it from the bottom side, it looks like a whole bunch of loose ends, right? When you turn it over, it all makes perfect pattern and perfect place. And so when we see these kinds of experiences from God's perspective, he of course would answer our prayer this way. He wouldn't answer it this way. Does that help? It's interesting as you talk, the two people that I know who are the angriest, most bitter anti-Christians that I know were, were people of faith at one time. Horrible injustices were inflicted on them by people in the church. And it's been 35 years and they've never recovered from that. Yeah, my, my uh, great-grandfather gave a bunch of money that he didn't, it was his whole harvest to get an organ for the church and the pastor ran away with the organist. Wow. Oh. Well, that impacted our family for generations. Yeah. Wow. You know, my father would, my grandfather wouldn't go to church. He even locked my grandmother up so she couldn't go to church. <laughs> you know. So, you know, that's what we do to one another. Yeah. But was it the church's fault? No. No. Not any more than Eli was the church's fault. But they've never been able to. Get but they've never. And that, that's where they're not struggling with God. They're just letting themselves hide behind the struggle because it's too painful for them, perhaps, or they don't have the ability to face it, perhaps. You know, I, I don't know the people, so I don't know. Yeah, sexual assault. Yeah, sexual assault. I mean, you can imagine how the women in Eli's uh, church felt towards these priests. You know, we see it today, uh, and so we go, wow, you know, what's that going to do to their soul? And I feel the same way whenever I see anybody in church leadership do any sin. It just crushes me. You know, we saw it in, in Colleen's emotional response to the text today, that it crushes any pastor who can see what harm this did and was doing, and it wasn't being stopped. I guess for those of us that can see sort of the death of a soul, shall we say, I mean, because there's physical death, there's, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And it's somebody that, a loved one or a close friend or something like that. I mean, you just feel powerless. I mean, yeah. I guess all we can do is pray, right? I mean, yeah. there's no magical answers, but it's so devastating to see that, that psyche just kind of crumble yeah. before you and then become so defiant, so unable to receive the truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Struggles of the soul, that's why, why I think the hymnists put it first. I think that that's the most common, actually. We tend to think of doubt as intellectual, but it's mainly a struggle that we're going through. And death is the most difficult because it's the most, I mean, what did, what did uh, were Adam and Eve told? If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. That's the, the consequence of sin. And so we feel the weight of sin so much. And even though our little one or our wife might not have been, you know, sinning, they might have loved the Lord, it's still the weight of sin. All of us, as, as my professors used to say, none of us are going to get out of this alive. So, you know, <laughs> you might as well start facing that. Okay, what does that look like? And from God's perspective, you know, even though from our perspective it's horrifically painful to say goodbye to a loved one, it's so final. From God's perspective, it might be the most gracious thing he does in our entire life. But we won't know that until 
we get there. And certainly in me, it doesn't feel that way. And so do I, do I let my intellectual life uh, overwhelm my feelings? They can't. I mean, the feelings are much stronger in my life. They might not be in others, but in my life, I feel stronger than I, than I think. Okay? So let's go on to the second. What's the second type of, of uh, doubt? The rising doubt. Bring doubt out of the shadows of our heart and mind into the light of God's day. That's how we check it out. You know, you can't just say, oh, well, I have these doubts. Well, tell me about them. I, I will often have, uh, have people say, you know, I don't believe in God. And I, I will say to them, well, describe for me the God you don't believe in. And they'll describe something that I, I wouldn't believe that either. <laughs> but where in the world did you get that? <laughs> That's, that's not the Bible that's, uh, I mean, the God that's told to us in the Bible. And even, I, heard, I read this, uh, a meme that was going around Facebook a while back, that it said, you know, and this is based on the fact that uh, our society has decided what they think Christian is more than Christians can say what it is. And they said, well, you know, Jesus wasn't very Christian. Isn't that a funny statement? Jesus wasn't very Christian because he didn't behave in the way our society thinks. But you should read the New Testament, read what Jesus did. He, he, he wasn't a PC guy. He actually <laughs> loved people and cared for them and confronted them and held them accountable. And, I mean, he says to the religious leaders, you brood of vipers. I mean, that's not very polite. You know? So what, you know, he's not very Christian. <laughs> so. Bring it out into that. So let's talk about that from just a few scriptures. Uh, then he, Jesus, said to Thomas. Now, Thomas, wouldn't you love to go down in history as doubting Thomas? I, I would rather be scientific Thomas. Something like that. But put your, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, what was he saying to him? Check it out. Yeah. Evidence. Evidence. There's nothing wrong at all with coming at your doubt with science. What, what, is, what do you think of this? Now the problem is when science isn't the answer, as we'll see. But doubts come because resurrection's impossible, and so we need to check out the evidence. Miracles are like this. Doubt leads us to a verified belief. And so one of the things that I love about the Catholic Church is that if there's everybody, anyone that claims a miracle, they send a bunch of scientists to the side, and they check it all out. And if it's a verified miracle that cannot be explained by something else, then they put it in the miracle category. If they don't, then they say, it's kind of like UFOs. Remember how the, the Air Force used to check it all out, and they came up with these 90 different ways that it wasn't a UFO? 9% of them they couldn't answer. Now that's interesting, you know? Are 9% of the UFOs aliens? <laughs> well, I don't know. You can't answer out of, out of uh, ignorance, right? So let's go on. Matthew, Jesus immediately reached out his hand to Peter, who had been walking on the water but began to sink. And he took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, some doubts come because we are doing the impossible and we take our eyes off Jesus. One of the interesting things about ministry is that they always say to us, 
What are you doing today that would be impossible to do without God's help? That's ministry. Everything else is human interactions. and I mean, it's easy to build a big church if you want to do something that's just human and give what people want, want to hear. The largest church in America does that. It's a prosperity gospel. If you follow Jesus, you're going to get rich. Well, that's not what the Bible says. So how do we come up with that? But if we are doing something impossible, we take our eyes off Jesus, then we're going to have doubt. We're going to, we're going to doubt ourselves, our ability. We're going to doubt that God could do this. We're going to doubt that, um, you know, whatever, whatever we're facing in ministry or in our life. Does that make sense? I loved uh, Colleen's emphasis that, that uh, Samuel was close to God. That's where he resided. That's where he could hear what God was saying. If we take mm. our eyes off him, if we move ourselves from him, you know, it's like a three-year-old. If they're quiet, you know you've got to go find them. You know? And the same kind of thing, if you remove yourself from God, then you're going to only have life from the human perspective. And so let's do... My computer did... There we go. Proverbs has a wonderful one. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Some doubts come because we've limited what we think to human perspective. We've leaned on our own understanding. Right? Then you're going to always come to a place of not understanding because God's world is so much bigger. bigger as as uh, in counseling, we talk about reframing, where if you have a world that's boxed in by however you limit it, you know, logic or science or whatever it might be, well, God's world is like this. And we reframe as Christians. You've taken this little frame of your life, and now you include so much more to the picture than this little part of the picture. Do you follow? And that's what, that's what we mean by revelation. When we say that God... Uh, reveals something to us. He's taken our little world and revealed. Andrew, were you just no, scratching your back? No, I was doing like a back scratch. Oh, but good, I didn't good. look like an arm raise, but I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. We can call evil good and good evil when we do that kind of stuff. That, that's what is uh, said quite often in Scripture. And Mark 9, immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm -hmm. Now some doubts are simply the reverse side of faith. Some, some people think that faith means not having doubt. Faith <coughs> means having doubt and faith in this relationship that continues on. Belief and unbelief. All trust is placed in God without knowing they will be trustworthy or true or faithful. It's the nature of love. And I'll talk about this more when I talk about prayer and unanswered prayer. What is prayer and what does that create within us in terms of this trust in God? But doubt is natural. It's a, you know, our faith will become sight is the way Paul says it. Until we die, our, our faith is going to have uh, this uh, doubt because we can't see what it is that it's going to be. Kind of like the example I used of the, of the carpet. Okay? 
And I think that's my last one. This one, let me see. Nope, Mark 11. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Now this is an interesting one because what Jesus is saying is that sometimes our doubts become impediments to what God wants to do in our lives because we don't believe he could do the impossible. A few years ago on Easter Sunday morning, I did a sermon called Lord of the Impossible. Because if we don't believe God can do the impossible in our lives, then our prayers are different, our, our, we live our lives differently. It's kind of like I, I said a moment ago, if we, if we don't believe that God in fact could do a miracle, then it makes it difficult for us to not be overwhelmed by doubt. That one of the saddest statements, I think, in Jesus' story is when he first starts his ministry, and he's, he's out here in all the surrounding territory, and he, he's making the, the lame walk and the blind see, and, and he's doing all these miracles. And then he comes to his hometown, remember? And it says he could not do, says could not do many miracles there because a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. Now that's a very sad statement. If, if we come to the point where we say, oh, well, you know, I know Jesus and Jesus wouldn't do this. Well, stop and think about that. What is limiting this? Is it you or is it God? Are you limiting what God wants to do by not thinking he could do it? Is your prayer one of trusting in God? I'll talk about that in just a sec. You follow Okay, so doubt can be an impediment. Uh, bring these out into God's day again. Check them out. Doubt your doubts. Don't let, don't let them have some kind of special pass because it's a doubt. Oh, and Jude, and have mercy on those who doubt. Everyone has doubts. I just love this. You know, in, in the more liturgical services, we say it all the time. Lord, have mercy. You know, have mercy on me. Uh, that's what we need to ask, especially in, in all these areas of intellectual and, and, and struggle and all that it might be. Okay, any, any questions about those kinds of doubts, the intellectual doubts? Did I address them well enough? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the rebel sigh. Now this is, is an interesting one. We have to keep it in check. Be aware of the use of doubt to buttress rebellion against God. To justify rebellion against God. You guys just stand over here. There we go. Uh, from Adam and Eve's rebellion, I just can't see it from this end. From Adam and Eve's rebellion uh, to our own, going our own way, the need to justify such sighing, you know, that kind of against God. Uh, against his commandments, his guidance, his requirements. That's the universal. Everybody has that. Everybody, you know, oh, God expects me to do that. You know, I don't know. I have to forgive after what they did to me. You, know, you, you, you feel the rebellion. It just comes from a deep place within each of us. A doubt brought in service of rebellion may be conscious or unconscious. Uh, part of the problem with all of us is that we're aware of some of our rebellion, we're not aware of others of our rebellion. And it, and it impacts our spiritual walk. 
And that's where uh, counseling comes in, you know, uh, pastoral care comes in, a good Bible study comes in, a good conversation comes in, uh, where we become aware of things that we weren't aware of. So these are the things that, that uh, we see in Scripture. Rolling the eyes in ridicule, mocking those who obey God, superiority over God's ways, uh, arrogance toward the superstitious or need for a church accused of Christians, discounting the life of God. So let's, let's look at each of those. I'll give you just a quick scripture. Uh, mocking those who obey. Uh, Psalm 1 is, uh, Psalm 1 verse 1 is one of the most powerful descriptions of the, the path that it takes to become a mocker of God. First of all, we walk with the way of the wicked. We stand in the way of sinners. Then we sit in the company of mockers. So we go from wicked to sinners to mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord? He meditates in the law day and night. So you can, you can see that there's a, a process that happens in this uh, state of mocking and, and uh, doubting. Okay? Follow. Can you read the whole thing for the people who are seeking where? Uh, blessed is the one who does not walk in the step in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night a powerful powerful uh, teaching of, of the scriptures ah, okay uh, superior, superiority over God's ways. That's a rebel sigh. Uh, I, my way is better than God's way. And so you have this 1 Samuel 12. Now if you fear and worship the Lord and listen to his voice, and if you do not rebel against the Lord's commands, then both you and your king will show that you recognize the Lord as your God. But if you rebel against the Lord's commands and refuse to listen to him, then his hand will be heavy upon you, as it was upon your ancestors. Uh, I, I actually use uh, the story of Eli and his two sons as a case study in my pastoral counseling course because it's such a great story. Here, here, you know, here's a father who's weak and the kids are, are rebelling against and, and, okay, what? You rebel against the Lord's commands. Well, God sends a messenger to Eli. Your, your kids are going to die on the same day. You're going to lose everything. It was an opportunity to, to repent, to change, to hold them accountable, to do it. But they don't. They refuse to listen. Then his hand became heavy upon him because that's the consequence of sin. Rebellion. Now you can justify it, kind of. I mean, if Eli were here today, we would probably ask him, well, did you hear God? Did you believe him? <clears throat> no, I, I don't think that was God. And God wouldn't talk like that. How do, when do we doubt what God says to us? I see that all the time in people's lives, especially intuition. God gives people intuition and then they don't listen to it. He sends them a clear warning and they don't listen. They don't do anything about it. Okay? Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm pointing at. Does it come out this end? Okay. 
I know the, maybe it's the other end. Okay, <laughs> arrogance towards superstitions and need for a crutch. There, there are a lot of rebellious attitudes that think that the church believes in superstition and therefore to have belief in God or belief in Christ is superstition. And uh, therefore the church is just a crutch. Isaiah 14 says, how art thou, and who's, who's he talking about here is Lucifer. And so this is one of those texts. Uh, we, we wonder where did Lucifer come from? Well, there's, there's a little more historical basis to it, but this is what the scripture says. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. And so here's the attitude of the arrogance over, I will exalt my thinking, my way of life, my understanding of God. I'm going to be God of my own life, right? And that's the exalting. And you use, well, will God do anything if I do that? You know, what did the serpent tell Adam and Eve? Uh-oh, you won't surely die. That's what he said. Okay, let me. Uh, now the last, discounting the life of God. And 2 Timothy says, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. There's a, a great statement in, in Proverbs which says that when you're in a court of law and somebody presents their side of a case, it sounds good until somebody cross-examines them. Mm -hmm. And what is often true, I find, is that we, we tend to go to those uh, news outlets and those teachers and those people who reinforce, reinforce what we already believe. And we think they're great if they say what we already believe. So we don't actually get news new, we don't get a contrasting view, which is what we must have if we're to be sober judgment, right? And so what, what, what we have here is that we discount the ways of God and people in their various uh, situations teach things that is not true about God. Then you could, I also read that as, could there be something said to people that are kind of tired of the plain old Christianity, they turn to other other cultish religions that want to add things or change things or add myths to that. Absolutely. Because it sounds sexier than, than what, we, what we've been given for kids. Well, that's the example I gave just a second ago with the largest church in America is a prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, prosperity gospel isn't actually something new, but it's kind of new in a, in a materialistic society in which if you follow God, you'll be rich. Well, if you're a materialist and that's what you're after in life, then using God to get rich isn't a bad, bad idea. So it could be a form of Christianity. 
I, I think of it a lot. I mean, you've read all the studies that in the, in the universities, the humanities, not the sciences, but the humanities, it'll be like uh, 50 to 1, uh, a more progressive to a conservative uh, person. And so we've multiplied teachers in a specific perspective. There needs to be balance because there's truth on, on both sides, right? And so how do we come to a place where there's a balanced perspective? Does that make sense? Boss? Um, this reminds me of the phrase, uh, every, um, every good, good lie has some truth to it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so tantalizing. Um, so I'm wondering if you have anything to say about how to discern how much of it is a lie, how much of it is truth. It's, it's, very, it's very hard without spending time <coughs> struggling, uh, struggling with, it, with God and with others, and with the word of God and so on. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that people tend to think is that people who believe what you don't believe are dumb or they're not as smart as you or something else. And the truth is that everybody's smart. Um, I remember when I was doing my doctoral work, uh, it, and at the master's level of, of training you to be a pastor, they have you read what Christians think about other religions. And so you're always looking at other religions kind of through the eyes of Christianity and you're contrasting them and comparing them and so on. Well, at the doctoral level, they had me actually read the practitioner of all these various religions within their own thinking, within their own systems. Well, when you do that, you, you have a, a whole different level of appreciation for how they came up with that belief and, and what it is. Uh, having said that, we recognize that, that uh, those various perspectives can't all be right, right, if they're oppositional. And so sometimes there are different things that can be woven together into a, a Christian thought, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're other things. And so you have to decide that. You have to talk together, read together. You know, I wouldn't read just one, one side of anything. Uh, I would read all the different sides. Otherwise, what, what, what happens to you is you have a false certainty. And then when you get something that doesn't fit your false certainty, you have to either castigate it, throw it off, not listen to it, call it stupid or whatever, rather than say, okay, my understanding wasn't large enough to understand this. So I want to grow in my understanding. Uh, God, as Wesleyans, we all believe that God's truth, that all truth is God's truth. And if it's true, it's true. Whatever religion it might come from, or whatever background it might come from. But we have to be careful to make sure that people are not teaching evil as good, or good as evil. But they haven't turned the world upside down. Does that make sense? That causes all different kinds of doubt. Okay, so that's the third type of doubt, right? Now I want to talk for just a moment while I'm talking about In two minutes I'll talk about that. I spent most of my life trying to get this forward. Cheryl, do you want to just push this thing? Maybe put your chair right there and just push it. Okay. Unanswered prayer. To, uh, to wait in patience. Uh, to ask a child, as a child, we, we, most of us have a perspective that we, um, we come to God as our Father. And Jesus taught us this, our Father which art in heaven. So we come as a child to a father 
and that the father wants to give us a good gift. Jesus says that. You know, what parent would give a child a, a stone who asked for a loaf of bread? But why does God often, and I would say even usually, say no, wait, maybe, later, just even give silence? Why, did, why are those the answers? I mean, as a parent, we pretty much know because if you've got a five-year-old who's asking you know, to eat five candy bars before lunch, you would say, no. Now, the child doesn't understand that. They love candy bars. What's, what's mom got against them? <laughs> Do you follow? So, so a father, we can understand some things, but silence? Why would God become silent? So go ahead, Cheryl. Part of the problem is our, what's called a mechanistic transactional analysis. We ask God, God always says yes. We control God from our limited perspective or finite life. Do you follow? That's the way most people think of prayer. They think that if God loved us, he would do what I ask, right? And it's really very mechanistic. And what you're really saying is, in fact, that uh, God is, needs to do what I say. Or God says no to whatever we ask. Then we doubt God's love, his care, his goodness, or even his existence. Right? Because of our misunderstanding of prayer. You follow? So go ahead, Cheryl. Now this is the way one person on the internet said it. And it's, I've seen better, but I couldn't find anything better. So you pray for something, right? Is that something in God's divine plan? Yes then prayer is redundant, so why do you pray he's already going to do it? Or no, then prayer is futile, so prayer serves no, no purpose. We actually had a, had a professor in my seminary get up there and say he was a prayer agnostic. And his logic was like this, you know, God already knows he's going to do best for you, right? Is that what the Bible says? No, God, God says... He wants you to participate in both your life and the life of the world. And he answers your prayers. He will bring about the changes in your life and others because you're a participant. It's, it's the same kind of thing as if I picked up my hand and picked up a hammer and started building this building. Well, I could just pray, God, build a building. Or I could pick up a hammer. Well, prayer is participating in what God wants to do in this meta uh, narrative kind of way. Does that make sense? Uh, what, what's been my experience is that when God answers my prayer, it's not like what I have in mind. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> so you should answer my prayer and it, like I said, no, it's <laughs> a totally different solution to my problem. <laughs> That's a great, I didn't even put that up there. That's yeah. better. <laughs> okay, so let's go on. What is prayer then? It's a relational participation with God. God's divine plan is what we should pray, right? Nobody would, would want to pray against what God wants to, to accomplish. So we pray for something. Is that something in God's plan? Well, yeah. Then you fulfill God's divine plan by praying. You build a relationship with him. You've learned something of his will for your life. No? Well, then you have fulfilled God's divine plan, and you build a relationship with him. Now, prayer is more than just a relationship. I don't want you to think that that's what this is saying. I heard it said that prayer is beating down the, the path to God so that you know where God is. Well, that's true, but it's more than that. He answers prayer. 
He many times says yes to us. Many times. I, I've personally experienced it lots of times where he's healed at, at a moment where the doctor said no. And I've been there many times where he hasn't healed when the doctors said no. So, I, as I said, you know, his divine plan, his perspective, what is that? How is it there? Go ahead, Cheryl. Now, if we seek his will, then we will, of course, spend time in his word with Christian counsel and seek how to pray. We'll trust. We know that God has heard our requests and trust his answer. Right? Now, that's a relational aspect of prayer, and trust is the end product of that. When you've prayed, regardless of what God says to you, you trust him. He's trustworthy. You know, he might answer it differently. He might be silent, which is usually because he's answered it and we haven't listened. You know, if God says no and we keep asking and so he turns silent, it's like a mom. Okay, go ahead. First John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Not that he's going to say yes to us, but he's got the request and he'll answer it in his way. What's best for us? Either we trust God or we don't. And that's what doubt is. Doubt is the, is the lack of trust that God loves us. And if you misunderstand prayer, that can become a reinforcement of lacking trust and, and to, to lack trust. Okay, go ahead, Cheryl. So we want God to fulfill our desires and passions for our own personal reasons, okay? If that's true, then we'll discover that God does not allow us to use the divine power for selfish gain, okay? Go on to the scripture. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? <laughs> My friends all, all drive Porsches. Porsches. <laughs> Go ahead, just... <laughs> Okay, the next one. We spend time with God abiding. Abiding is a, is a, a wonderful word. You know, in, uh, in John, he talks about the branch abiding, the, the, yeah, the branch ab abiding in the trunk of the vine so that the nutrients and the connection and all the things that we need for life come from the source, come from God. I'll actually talk about that next week and when I talk about the ecosystem and how we connect with God. In him will cause our desires to become like God. If we abide in him, our desires will become like God. When we want what God wants, then God can say yes, if it's the right time, place, or situation, right? We could be praying in the will of God, but it's not the right time. So he's going to wait, or he's going to change it, or it's going to be in a different place or a different way, because he wants us to not get some kind of mechanistic understanding of him, but to get a real understanding of his love, his trustworthiness, his compassion and care. That's the end product of all this. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So we're without doubt in him. Okay, go ahead. Oh, is this it? Yeah. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. And Psalm 34, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I had somebody teach me that probably about 10 years ago, they said that they had been reading that backwards, and I realized that I had been too, that it's not that God gives you the desires of your heart. He gives you 
the desires of your heart. And that changed everything for me because I realized that God will give me the desires that he wants me to have if I will spend time with him. And then he gives me the desires of my heart so that then I can commit my way to the Lord, trust him, and he will act. That makes sense? Okay, is that the last one, Cheryl? Oh, no. Uh, when anxious, we come to God. Two more minutes, everybody? Can we do it? Okay. When anxious, come to God and ask for protection and care, right? We discover the peace of God that does not come from human understanding. I already said all that, so go ahead. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, you know, trusting that it's going to happen in a good way, let your request be made known to God. Okay? Go ahead. Uh, okay, that's all this. I've got some other stuff up there, but we're out of time, so we'll leave it. Okay, any questions? Like Do you guys want to hear, see the rest of it? Okay. Okay, I've got a good picture. Cheryl says. Okay, go ahead. I just, I just was going to talk for just a moment that doesn't come from the floor and from the hymn of self-doubt. Uh, self-efficacy and self-doubt is something that tends to plague certain people. It's not universal. And it tends, tends to come from parenting, the way your parents either had faith in you or not and caused you to doubt yourself or not. Or early school education where your, your teachers you know, acted like you couldn't, you couldn't do anything you know, and you're not going to make it in this school because you're whatever. So doubt kills more dreams and failures. Self-efficacy, this comes from psychology. Self-efficacy is the belief we have in our own abilities, specifically our ability to meet the challenges ahead of us and complete a task successfully. General self-efficacy refers to our overall belief in our ability to succeed. And this is actually, there are four types of trust in ourselves. Uh, in trust. The first is trust in others. The second is trust in self. Not everybody develops trust in self due to a, a lot of different reasons. And then there's two other ways. Okay, go ahead. Sure. Well, then it's that... complicated, so you may want to stop. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> uh, I was going to give you, this is a wonderful, the, the goddess of doubt. It's a great story. Look it up and read it. Yeah, you can take a picture of it. Okay, go ahead. Uh, and the myth that doubt, you know, the story is very clear. Doubt will destroy you. And uh, that's the mythical view. Okay. Can I pray for you? This is a good conclusion. Oh. <laughs> Love is weakest when there's more doubt than trust. Love is strongest when we learn to trust in spite of the doubts. I'm glad I chose that. That's good. <laughs> okay. Any why, questions before why don't you pray for us and then people can say if you want to ask questions. Father, thank you that you are with us and that doubts, though they are a natural part of the struggles and our own thoughts and our rebel sigh and our prayer life, that you meet with us in the midst of that and you teach us how to trust you in the midst of our doubts. And we thank you that you've given us minds and lives and hearts and that in all of this, we might become the full person that you intend us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay.